Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by the UCLA Extension Writers Program, the largest open enrollment creative writing and screenwriting program in the nation. At UCLA Extension, you can take courses in novel writing, short fiction, memoir, personal essay, poetry, playwriting, writing for the youth market, publishing, you name it. And you can also take screenwriting courses, both feature film and television. The various classes are taught by top-level instructors who have actually walked the walk, publishing books and producing films and television shows. The program features almost 500 courses annually, both online and on-site, at beginner, intermediate, and advanced levels, with evening, weekend, and daytime options as well. The program also features certificate programs in feature film, television writing, fiction, and creative nonfiction, manuscript and script consultations, writing competitions, free events, nine-month master classes, mentorships, scholarships, and friendly and knowledgeable advisors. For more information, call 310-825-9415. That's 310-825-9415 or visit them on the web at uclaextension.edu slash writers or check them out on Facebook and the Twitter. This is a writer's program. You can learn to write better. Go and do it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jake, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. All right, everybody, right. here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is the opposite of silence. This is provided free of charge. My guest today is Edgar Carrot. He is a uh, celebrated author of short fiction, graphic novels, and screenplays. He is from Israel. His most recent book is a collection of short stories called Suddenly a Knock on the Door. It is available now from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux here in the United States. And uh, I'm very pleased to have Edgar on the program. He and I are going to be talking in just a minute at length, and you can listen to that. Uh, conversation in its entirety, which uh, is pretty much the idea. That is the concept of the program. Uh, otherwise, what can I say? It's been a bit of a slow day. Uh, I've been getting back into the swing of things gradually. Uh, I went on a little road trip yesterday. I went to see a buddy of mine and his wife. Uh, they just had a child, a beautiful baby girl, and they live down in the San Diego area. And so my wife and I drove down to visit them and to visit their newborn 
And, uh, you know, we of course have our own daughter with us who is nearly uh, two years old at this point. And uh, whenever you travel with a child, for those of you don't, you know, who don't know, uh, it, you know, it adds layers uh, to the proceedings. It adds complications, uh, oftentimes, inevitably and inescapably. So uh, we were a little late in leaving, and uh, we missed our scheduled departure time, which uh, which had me a little bit stressed out. Uh, and for some reason, I, I was particularly fixated on being efficient about this trip. And uh, I think it you know might have something to do with the fact that I've been through this situation before. And uh, you know my my friends, uh, their, their daughter was born about ten days ago, and so I know how chaotic uh, you know the initial transition can be, and how sleepless it is, and and how uh, disorderly and and haywire it can generally be. So on the one hand, uh, you know I think as as new parents, you do want people to come by and visit and to say hello and to uh, see your offspring, but on the other hand, you don't want too much of that. And and so I guess what I'm trying to say is that a little bit tends to go a long way. And uh, so the plan, uh, as I had conceived it in my mind, was to bring some food, you know, to bring some some meals for the couple, because one of the things that you tend to forget to do when you're sleep deprived and adjusting to parenthood is is you forget to eat something. Uh, And then we also wanted to bring gifts for the baby, obviously, just, you know, usual stuff. So I had it in my head that we would show up around two and we would be gone uh, by like three thirty. So we're talking like a 90 minute visit tops, uh, you know, and, and we were not going to overstay our welcome, thereby uh, somehow increasing the burden on the new parents inadvertently. You know, we were simply there uh, to pay homage to their child and to exchange uh, greetings and to offer gifts. And that was it. And uh, I guess this is a good time to admit that uh, I'm just not a very good guest, uh, or may- maybe I'm actually a great guest. The point is that uh, I am perhaps overly concerned uh, whenever I am a guest that I am somehow inconveniencing people. Uh, and, you know, especially if I have to stay in their house, like on an overnight basis, uh, if that's the case, I will, all, you know, almost automatically feel like I'm in the way and uh, that, I, that I just need to go. So then there was the issue of the newborn and uh, the fact that we were bringing, you know, our uh, child into their house, our toddler. And, you know, newborns obviously have fragile immune systems. So I wasn't sure if, uh, if my friends were going to be uh, concerned about this. And I wanted to, you know, wanted to be certain that, uh, you know, we were considerate of their wishes because parents and especially new parents, uh, you don't know how they're going to react. Everybody has a different take on it. So, uh, you know, some, some are worried easily about microorganisms, uh, and the like, and others, you know, not so much. And, uh, you know, I remember uh, when my daughter was born, there was always lots of hand sanitizer around and that kind of thing. And, and even, and especially in the hospital, you know, that's where it all started. They had, you know, hand sanitizer everywhere in the hospital. And there were all these signs up everywhere encouraging you to use it. So, uh, you know, I just took that as a cue and, and, you know, on the one hand, you don't want to be paranoid, but on the other hand, you don't want to be foolish either. So, uh, the point is I felt like I was prepared and I felt like I had a good plan in place. Uh, but then we started driving and, uh, you know, we, we started, I think we got out of there about a half an hour late. So already we were behind the eight ball. And then about 20 minutes into the trip, uh, we wound up getting stuck in a massive traffic jam on the five freeway heading South. And, uh, we were near the San Onofre nuclear power plant. 
which uh, which you may recognize, uh, you know, from the movies or from television. It looks like a pair of giant breasts. That's what this nuclear facility looks like. And, uh, of course, this uh, traffic jam and this situation left me a bit frustrated. Uh, you know, not only were we at a standstill on the freeway uh, while also running late, uh, we were also at a standstill downwind from a massive nuclear reactor. So... You know, I was texting my buddy and I was apologizing for being late and I was voicing concerns that we were inconveniencing them somehow uh, and so on and so forth. And my friend is like, don't worry about it. It's not your fault that there's traffic. Uh, and so that sort of, uh, you know, assuaged my concerns. Is that how you say that? And then finally, uh, eventually, after, you know, quite a while, this traffic jam ended. And what's interesting is that I never saw the cause of it. And I have to assume that it was some kind of horrific traffic accident but I never saw any damaged vehicles, I never saw any sirens or flashing lights, nor did I see any broken glass or any of the usual telltale signs uh, of that nature on the road. So, I don't know what it was. Uh, the point is that traffic started moving, uh, and I now felt compelled to make up some time. So, I was driving somewhat rapidly, and I was changing lanes, and I was weaving a little bit. Uh, it was nothing too reckless, but I was driving a bit more aggressively than usual in the name of uh, punctuality. And so uh, my wife is in the back seat. She's with my daughter who is in her car seat. And my wife is feeding my daughter because it is lunchtime. And I'm sort of listening to the radio and I'm focused on the road and I'm driving quickly and several minutes go by and we're making some good time. And then all of a sudden I hear my wife in the back seat say, oh my God. And I, uh, I looked up in the rearview mirror and it was clear uh, that something was most definitely the matter. Uh, and my wife once again said, uh, oh my God. And then she said, she's barfing. She's barfing everywhere. And uh, this was true. She was indeed barfing. My daughter was uh, projectile vomiting all over the back seat. And my wife was uh, struggling to contain it somehow and, and failing to achieve that containment. And so now uh, I'm driving and I can smell it. <laughs> And I'm like, oh, God. And I'm rolling the windows down. And my wife is like, pull over. But there's nowhere to really pull over. So we have to drive another mile or two uh, until we reach uh, a suitable rest area. A kind of lookout point off to the right, uh, just off of the highway. That kind of looks out over the Pacific Ocean, uh, not far from Camp Pendleton, the, uh, the beautiful Pacific. And so we pulled in and we came to a stop. And there were several cars parked and a giant painted bus was sitting there. Uh, looked kind of like Ken Kesey's bus, only it was covered in uh, Bible verses uh, and so on. So it was kind of like a Christian Mary Prankster bus of some sort. So uh, we unload uh, our daughter from the vehicle, and uh, we obviously have to clean this up. And, uh, and obviously we're now going to be even more late than we already are, and uh, I have to consider what to do. Like I have now reached a moment of, of crisis, a moment of decision, and I, I need to decide, uh, do I send a text message and say, uh, you know, I'm sorry, we're going to be even later. Uh, our daughter just projectile vomited all over the car. And, uh, and I should interject here that I'm 99% sure she was just car sick. Uh, she was eating at the time of the accident. She was in the back seat. She's facing backwards in that car seat. I was driving uh, and changing lanes, and there was some starting and stopping happening. And, uh, you know, aside from that, uh, there were no indications of the flu of any kind. There was no fever, no whining, no pers you know, no perspiration, like nothing like that. 
just a spontaneous vomiting everywhere. So uh, rather quickly, as I'm standing there at this rest area, I decide that I'm not going to text my friend and tell him this because uh, not only are we late, I don't want to then compound the uh, situation by being uh, or by telling him, you know, by the way, you know, my daughter uh, just vomited because uh, that, you know, they would almost certainly be worried about that. And I, I felt like it would put a damper on the visit. And, you know, and what would happen next? Like maybe we would have to quarantine my daughter outdoors. Uh, who knows what would, you know, what would go down. But, uh, you know, luckily, we, uh, you know, my wife had a change of clothes on hand for her. And she had lots and lots of wipes because you do all, you know, you always need uh, wipes when you have a young child with you. So we got her cleaned up. We got her, in, uh, you know, into some new clothes. And uh, we, we then disposed of the uh, soiled, you know, soiled garments properly in a trash can over by the painted Jesus bus. And then we got back into the car, we started driving, and my daughter uh, started saying, on repeat, I barfed. I barfed. (laughs) Just like that, uh, over and over again. And this goes on for the better part of a half an hour, uh, like almost the remainder of the trip. Uh, My daughter in the back seat just saying, I barfed. I barfed. Mommy. I barfed. Daddy. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So, you know, so not only is the repetition a bit grating as I'm trying to uh, steer us towards our destination, it is also exacerbating my feelings of concern uh, because I'm thinking to myself, Jesus, uh, this kid won't stop repeating herself. And moreover, she's going to say this when we're at my friend's house. She's going to be saying I barfed repeatedly. And and obviously everyone's going to hear this and they're going to learn the truth. And she is going to expose our lie. She cannot be trusted. She is too pure. She has not yet learned the dark art of concealment. There is nothing we can do. This child has no filter. And my God, does this car smell terrible? And why, why does everything always have to be so hard? Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. I don't think that there's anything like physical that I have in my life that I would say is valuable. You're attached to nothing. I'm, I'm kind of that way. Like, you're not a sentimental person about stuff. No, it's, you know, as I said, my mother is a Holocaust survivor, and she told me a story when I was a child that, you know, she was in the Warsaw Ghetto, and she told me that there was a time where, like, the Germans were getting into this town after she escaped the ghetto. 
and the, the Jews were kind of escaping. And she was a child, so she wasn't as quick as the other people, and she saw the people getting away, and they were carrying stuff with them. And then she she saw there was this guy who had a, how do you say, a grandfather clock, you know, those big clocks? Yeah. And he took it on his back, and he was kind of running away with the clock, but apparently the clock was very heavy. And she kind of started getting closer and closer to the guy, and by the time she was close to him, the guy collapsed, you know, he fell, and the clock kind of fell on him. Which sounds very metaphorical with time and stuff, but but uh, she told it to me when I was six years old, and what I got out of it is that stuff can only encumber you, and and that you don't need anything. I don't know. It's like like I love books, but when I finish a book, you know, if it sucks, I get rid of it, and if it's good, I give it to somebody I like. Right. No, I had I actually went through a, a phase. I talked about it on this program before, where I got rid of a lot of books because I looked at them on my shelf and I realized that they should be circulated. They shouldn't be just sitting here on my shelf collecting dust. Like, unless you're, you're really going to use them, like, why not, like, put them into the world again so that other people can, you know... But I also feel that, you know, if there's a book that you like so much that you will use again, then buy two copies. Right. Right, exactly. And then give one to, you know, give one to someone. So, yeah. uh, with regard... In my case, if, if it's a book that I wrote, you should buy three copies. <laughs> Because I gave you the two copies I did, so you owe me an extra copy. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you talk about your... Did you say just your mother? Uh, no, my father was also a Holocaust survivor. He passed away a few weeks ago. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Um, yeah. And were they both uh, from Poland? or? Yeah, they were both from Poland, but my, but my father was from a part that now belongs to Belarus, to White Russia. It used to be Poland before the war. Okay. And like, I mean, obviously that's a source of a lot of narrative and it sounds like your mother, you know, is something of a storyteller, right? Is that where you get it from or? Uh, my, my father was a, an amazing storyteller too. You know, it's a, the thing is that uh, when I was a kid, a child, uh, my parents would always tell me a bedtime story and uh, and they were very well-read people, but the idea was that they never read me a story from a book. They always made up the stories. And it had to do with the fact that when they were children, their parents made up the stories for them because they were in the ghetto and they had no access to books. And it was like they realized they could buy a book and read from it, but it would be like kind of a, a feeding your child a McDonald's, you know? It's kind of only lazy parents do that. So they would make up those stories. And my father's bedtime stories uh, were always took place in a horror house. <laughs> <laughs> And they were always about the uh, whores and drunk people. Well, and this is like when you're like five, six years old, he's telling yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he ex explained to me that a whore is a, is a woman that, that her job is to listen to other people's trouble, you know, and uh, that a drunk person is somebody that the more liquids he consumes, the happier he becomes, you know, and so he so ex got everything right. Yeah, so he explained it to you, but like in like childlike terms, you know, he he, he translated Yeah, yeah. And the, and the, the and the thing is that the, that the, my father after the war uh, he tried to get to Israel and uh, and the British uh, caught him and they sent him back to Europe and uh, he became part of this kind of resistance that fought the British but he was in Europe so it was tough to fight them you know from that distance and so they gave him this assignment to, to get weapons for the underground. So 
So he went to southern Italy and he befriended some mafia people and he would buy weapons from them. But uh, because he wanted to save the, all the money for the weapons, he didn't rent any place. He would ju- just uh, sleep in a, a public uh, gardens. And the mafia guys who felt sorry for him said to him, you know what, we own a whorehouse and there's always one room empty so you could just, you know, stay there. And this year was like kind of the best year of his life or maybe like the first good year of his life, you know. And uh, he was kind of amazed by the kindness of the prostitutes and the mafia people and the fact that they knew he was Jewish but they still weren't trying to kill him, you know. <laughs> so so when he when he would tell stories, he wanted to tell stories about, you know, about the nice times and about the good people. So, so there were stories about prostitutes and drunks and mafia guys. Yeah, well, that's interesting. It's like, the, you know, you don't often hear those kinds of uh, characters associated with sweetness and kindness and stuff like that, the way that they're often portrayed in movies and books and stuff like that. But, you know, the thing about my, my dad, that he, he was, like, uh, completely non-judgmental, you know? So so there were, like, kind of some bad mafia guys and good mafia guys, and you and and kind of coming after the war, you know? He said to me, like, when I was growing up, he said to me, you know, they killed people, but they were always very reluctant to do it and felt really bad when they did it. And he said, and the Germans didn't. So kind of compared to them, to the Germans, they were nice. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, I mean, so tell me more about uh, your parents' experiences. Like, did, you said your mother escaped from the Warsaw Ghetto? So did it... Yeah, my mother, uh, she lost both her parents and her kid brother. She was in the end of the war she was completely alone and uh, she and her father left to get the Warsaw Ghetto for the, to, for another ghetto before the uprising which is basically which basically saved her life and uh, my father he, he hid with his family uh, with his parents and some uncles you know in a in a hole they dug in the ground and they dug it like very quickly and they want to hide in it until the Germans get out of uh, town. It was in some farm. Uh, and, uh, but the guy who helped them in that farm, his son was a German collaborator, so he convinced the Germans to to open their headquarters in that farm. So basically, my father and his family couldn't get out because the Germans built the headquarters practically above their heads, and they were stuck in that hole in the ground for 600 days. And they... And only when the Russians had liberated uh, that area, they were able to come out. And they, you know, by at that time, you know, the muscles didn't muscles didn't function. They they couldn't stand. They couldn't walk. Your father it lived was, in a your father lived in a hole for six hundred days. Yeah, yeah. Goodness gracious! So, like, I mean, how and how big of all, how many people were in there, and how big was this hole? Uh, there were five, I think. And uh, he said that it was like a. It was too. Uh, uh, it wasn't deep enough for you to stand in it, and it wasn't wide enough for you to lie in it. So they basically sat for six hundred days. Oh my God! Unbelievable. Yeah. That's an unbelievable story. And so then, eventually, they both got to. Both of your parents got to Israel. Is that correct? Yeah. And so, when did that happen, and how did that happen? Well, they both got here like uh, on forty uh, forty eight, but they but they made 
met later on, it was like kind of a second marriage for both of them. Uh, they were, my, my mother was first married to a soccer player. And uh, they got a divorce because she was studying to be a lawyer and he was a very jealous guy. Uh, and uh, he headbutted my mother's professor and broke his nose. <laughs> so so they had a divorce after that. And my father also had a, got married and got divorced at a very, very young age. Did his uh, did his ex-wife headbutt anyone? Or? No, but it's another it's a very another strange story. But my, what happened was that my father got his parents to Israel uh, alive after the war and when they got here uh, his, uh, uh, his father had a, had a kind of a store and he got into some fight with one of the neighbors and the neighbor came in Yom Kippur Day of Atonement and they stabbed my grandfather to death Whoa. and and the thing about Jews that you know that uh, there is a shiva is after seven days that you mourn for the dead, you know. So the shiva was in his mother's house, and after the shiva, he told his wife that he's not go- coming home. He went back to his room, you know, at his mother's house, and stayed there. And after a few months, like you know, she she would come to visit him, his wife, and he said to her, you know, it's not working out. I'm, I don't know, all these kind of my debts. Death kind of fucked me up, and and I don't want to ruin your life, and so we should divorce. Jesus. So, wh- why did the, why did your I guess that would have been your grandfather. Like, why why was he stabbed again? Like, what was the motive? Oh, it was uh, the thing was that the, the, uh, uh, there was an argument where they should place the 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 apartment houses uh, bin, you know, where you throw the garbage, uh-huh. and that guy asked my my grandfather to vote against moving it and my grandfather said no i want them to move it and he said if you vote if you won't do what i tell you i'll come with a knife and i'll kill you and my grandfather said fuck you and he came with a knife and killed him god that's unbelievable yeah that's awful so uh so then uh you know you were born uh at, at some point right i mean what clearly yeah i'm the youngest of three i'm the youngest of three it's like, you know, every member of the family, it will get crazier and crazier, okay? So the eldest is my brother. Uh, my brother w- was this kind of kid genius, an amazing genius. He graduated from high school when he was 14 and a half, and by the age of 15, he started in university, and he lived with his two girlfriends. One of them was 25, the other was 23. And, he you had, know, and I was... Two at the same time, or...? Yeah, yeah. Oh wow! Okay, he is a ge- <laughs> he is a genius. <laughs> <laughs> no, and the thing was that I always say that you know I was like nine at the time, and I say okay, okay, I just have to hold on for another six years, you know. Right. And then those two girls come, you know, and one will give me a blowjob while the other will sit on my face, and everything's going to be great. <laughs> and then I was fifteen, you know, and I just had zits on my face, and no girl wanted to date me, and I was in the I don't know. Uh, 10th grade, you know, and everything sucked, you know, it just worked for my brother. Yeah. And my bro- but my brother kind of had made development after it. He, so he kind of graduated, he had, he, he, he was a computer genius and, and he very quickly became a, a, a an ex- extreme radical, a, a anti-Zionist activist. 
and uh, also he started the legalized marijuana movement in, in Israel, uh, and they became a political party, and they almost got into parliament, and they wanted to legalize marijuana, and they, they were against police brutality. And the you younger uh, is my sister, and my sister uh, is an ultra-Orthodox Jew. She has uh, 11 children and 7 grandchildren. She's 49. Jesus. Uh, uh, and she's, uh, and it's not Jesus, it's the ad, other God. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and for some times, like, she, she used to live in a settlement just for financial reasons, because, you know, when you have so many children, then... And then she moved to Jerusalem, and basically, you know, they speak Yiddish, and she speaks Hebrew with me, but, but uh, they're very, very, she, her family now is very, very strict, very religious. Wow, okay, so, and then you're the youngest, and then where do you fall? Because it sounds like your brother and your sister are at the opposite spectrum, you know, opposite polarities, correct? Uh, no, no, I think it's pretty much the same. Ah, and I forgot to tell you that my brother, for the past seven years, he lives in Thailand, Okay. With his wife, uh, who's Israeli. Just, one, and, just uh, one wife? Just one wife? Is that right? Just one wife. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, with the years, he became more modest. But, uh, but, uh, but for the first five years, he lived with his wife on a tree uh, with high-speed internet. In a tree? On a tree, yeah. Okay. It's like a tree house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, but they kind of moved to... To a, a more kind of a conventional kind of place, a couple of years ago, and I think to my brother and my sister, you know, the thing with my brother and my sister and me, I feel that there is something very similar about us because because our parents they never had a chance kind of to do what they want. They were busy surviving, you know. Yeah. And uh, and there was. My parents always gave us this feeling, you know, that uh, there is something we should achieve, but they cannot guide us there because they don't know what this thing is. It's as if, you know, they could co- take us all the way to this wall and kind of t- we give us a piggyback ride, you know, but we had to go get to the other side. And this idea was kind of to transcend, and to transcend meant to live a life that is more, more it's not about kind of, surviving and not about making money and not about, I don't know, having fame. And I think that, you know, that my sister does it through religion and my brother does it through social activism and I do it through writing. But, you know, we all have this thing in common, you know, none of us is rich. And uh, we don't, we, you know, a Jewish family without a, without a doctor, without a dentist, without a lawyer, you know, we do have something in common. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, there are things that are binding you together. And, like, do you guys all get along pretty well? Yeah, very well, very well. You know, it's, uh, for example, you know, when my sister, she, the ultra-Orthodox had riots in Jerusalem because they believed that a road was being built on an ancient uh, Jewish burial ground. Then my brother came and they trained the ultra-Orthodox people how to deal with the police when, when they riot. And I said to my brother, why do you do it? You know, it's not your ideology. And my brother said, oh, no, it's not true. You know, we both say, I think ultra-Orthodox are anarchists too, and we both don't acknowledge, uh, we don't see the, the government as our government. 
And I said to him, you know, it sounds good, but it's kind of a bullshit thing to say, you know. And my brother said, yeah, but you know what? She's my sister. If she would ask me to move an apartment, I'd help her move an apartment. If she'd ask me to riot, and I riot, you know. And I'm much better in rioting than in moving apartments. So. <laughs> it's a specialty. Yeah. So, okay, so that's interesting. So now, uh, how did your sister get into the whole Orthodox thing? Like, you know, was that something she was that was presented to her by your parents, or is that something she sort of found on her own? No. No, it's, you know, when we sat in the Shiva, when my father died a few weeks ago, she told me this really nice story that she said that she was always attracted to religion and that before she went, you know, to kind of, uh, to meet religious people and start studying about it, she she asked my father, she said to him, let's go to a cafe, and they sat in a cafe, and she said to him, you know what, I want to become religious, and I didn't speak to anybody yet, and the reason that I want to speak to you before that is because I know for sure that I'm going to be very, very fanatic and very, very extreme. And I wanted to say to you to, in advance, so you won't blame, you know, the Orthodox people that they brainwashed me. So I didn't speak to anybody yet, and I'm already telling you that I'm going to have a shitload of kids, and I'm going to be really, really <laughs> all the way, you know, as religious as you can be. And she said, she always said that there was something about kind of a disbelief and and what she saw as a very moral way of living that that, that it, it had always attracted her so she knew right away i mean isn't the, what what is that isn't that interesting because like where do you fall on that spectrum like where are you in, when it comes to religion well it's, it's funny because you know i have a i have a six-year-old son and and a few weeks ago uh, my 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 wife's mother asked him if he believes in in God, and he said, "Well, you know, in my fa- family it's very complicated because my father's sister believes there is a God, and my mother doesn't believe there is a God, and me and my father we haven't decided yet." <laughs> <laughs> That's about where I am. I mean, so you you consider yourself like an agnostic? Yeah, in a sense, you know, it's like I I, I once referred to my stories. I said that they are agnostic Hasidic tales. And and the thing about about it, it's not. It's like I'm I'm sure that there is something out there that is beyond our grasp and our understanding. I'm just a little bit suspicious when people say say that this kind of a, a transcendental thing comes with a manual. You know? Yeah, yeah. I have a hard time. I have a hard time f- believing that any human being has has figured it out. I get suspicious whenever there's too much certainty. That's how I feel. You know. But I think that's what makes life kind of something that doesn't get out of style, you know? The fact that it's kind of this unsolved riddle, you know? I think if it would have been certain, if you knew for sure that there, there is a meaning for life, or there isn't, or there is a God, or there isn't, you know? It would, like, it's like when you play a video game and you reach the last stage, you know? It becomes boring. Yeah. Well, and then the other thing that gets me is, like, how, how does, like, uh, somebody like your sister... Um, become who she is and how do then you or me how do we become who we are like do you think it's a genetic thing like what what is it within you that winds up uh, drawn to agnostic thinking for lack of a better term and then what is it in your sister that draws her to religion so strongly and with such clarity do you know what I'm saying like I I wonder about that that's like that's what's fascinating to me like how you know I can understand if you're born into a tradition and it's something that you're sort of um uh, you know that you're practicing from a young age, but if it's something that you come to in your adult life, 
uh, I find that fascinating, you know? Well, you know, it, it's funny because, you know, we always kind of carry uh, some assumptions because you could say it's a genetic, somebody could, else could say it's spiritual, right. you know, you could say it's a believing soul that, you know, that if it will kind of be reincarnated as a, as a rat, it would be a believing rat, you know? Mm. And you could say it's a gene, and and basically, you know, it's probably neither, you know, or a combination of both or everything. There is something about it that it's funny that, you know, uh, I kind of have a great curiosity about these questions, but no urge kind of to check them out, you know? Yeah. It's like, you know, it's like sometimes somebody, I can see technological gadgets and say, wow, I wonder how this one, this thing works. But I don't really wonder how it works. I'm just happy that I have it, you know? Right, right. And, You're not going to, like, get out the instruction manual and read it for fun, you know? <laughs> no, yeah, no. It's kind of, it seems to work, you know? There's tons of things that I don't know, but uh, maybe not knowing them can make me more hopeful and optimistic than I should be. I don't know. And maybe I don't want to stop being more hopeful and op- optimistic. Yeah. Well, so to, to go back to, you know, growing up and how you came to writing and everything, you were talking about yourself as an adolescent and you said you were sort of like a, uh, you know, didn't have quite the same luck with girls that your, that your brother had. Like what kind of, kind of child were you? Uh, I, I think I kind of lived inside my head most of the time. Uh, when I was a kid, my parents uh, told me that, you know, that I, I shouldn't go to school if I don't want to. So whenever I didn't want to go to school, I would just stay home and kind of do nothing, you know, just kind of sit at the balcony and look outside and think all kinds of weird thoughts and uh, can i can i stop you like let me ask you like yeah. why, why were your parents so permissive like why they they just didn't care if you didn't go to school they were they were really obviously tolerant of you doing what you wanted to do or well the thing about my parents is that you know that my mother always said you know that uh, that being orphaned in a very young age she said that that when you come to ra- to raise children you always look at your parents and if you had a horrible childhood you do the opposite, and if you're the beautiful one, you do exactly what your parents did. And she said, I don't have any reference. And I think that many of the things that my parents did, they, they didn't understand how radical they were. Yeah. I think, I think they kind of thought that you know that when you're a parent, you're there to protect your child. And if your child doesn't want to do something, then he shouldn't, you know? And that, I mean, how, so how much school were you missing? Uh, a lot. You know, I, like, I remember that there was this year that I did, I, I, there was this kind of lesson on Thursday that I didn't want to go to, and for the entire year, I didn't come at, at any Thursday to school. Oh, my God. Okay. And so, like, educationally, like, what kind of student were you? Like, obviously, you weren't there much, but were you were you able to get good grades, or were you sort of disinterested? Well, well I was, like, I kind of grew up in a, in a, in a, not not a very good neighborhood, so so I had this kind of edge that the general level of studying was very low, and and I was kind of okay. I wasn't good, and there there were issues because I missed so many days. So there were a couple of years where they wanted me to you know to do the year again, and then my parents would come and talk about how sick sick I was. You know that I because I'm asthmatic. And they said, you know, that the, um, I was punished by having bad health, and if they do that, they, you know, they, they would kind of bullshit my way into 
next year. Right. Okay. And then, so how early did you know that you were going to be uh, a writer? Like, did you start writing when you were a kid, or is it something you did later? No, no, I never wrote. I, the, the thing is, because my brother was a computer genius, and it's because I was very close to him, I always w- wanted kind of to study math and computers. And actually, that's what I studied in university. I studied math and philosophy. Uh, so I never kind of, I never wanted to be a writer. I, I still don't want to be a writer. I'm a writer, but it's not. It's not. It wasn't never a goal that I wanted to achieve. So, so you say you don't want to be a writer, but you just can't stop yourself from doing it. Is that essentially it? No, it's like it's like I write, but you know, but 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 there is something about writing that I write from a very kind of. A, for me, writing is an act of kind of losing control. So I, I I can't see in it a profession or a career because you know I I don't I, at any given moment I don't know if I'll ever write again you know it's not that it's not that I think that I possess some sort of a a, a skill that I can wield at any given moment you know I'm it's not, I'm not a person who's good with his words you know you know when we have problems with with the municipality I, I don't know, they find us for something. And we, you need to write them letters, and either my mother or my wife or my brother would write that letter because I don't write letters very well. Interesting. So how do you work on your fiction? Like, how does it happen? It's, uh, it always begins. Like, there is something that kind of gets stuck in my head. It could be kind of a sentence or an image. There is something that kind of moves me a lot and that I cannot explain to people why it moves me a lot, you know. And I would go to my wife and say, no, I saw this thing and I felt like crying. And she would say, why did you feel like crying? It was just stupid what you saw. And then you kind of sit down and and writing a story is kind of a way of explaining or articulating what was that thing that kind of moved you, you know. And uh, and sometimes you're successful doing, in doing it and sometimes you're not. So do you write these? I mean, you, the, the the stories in in your latest collection they're, they're they're all relatively short. So are you writing these things in one sitting? Is that how they they tend to come to you, like I, in one big burst? I I try to write them in one sitting, uh, at, at least to write like some sort of a self-contained draft. But it doesn't always work that way. But I I I try to. You know, usually. If I get stuck, I get stuck, and then I, I return to the text. But uh, but I don't mind like sitting for ten or eleven hours if I know that in the end I have something that kind of has a beginning and an end. Even if I change it a lot during the editing process. And like yeah, how much are you editing? Like are you are you spend a lot of time going over it and revising, or, or does it usually not require all that much? No, no, I I I spend a lot of time with editing and the. And usually in the editing process, I kind of cut the stories shorter. I make them much shorter. Sometimes I can write a longer story and then edit it. I could write like you know a twelve-page story and edit it into a two-page story. Hmm. And so, and then are you are you disciplined about writing, or do you only work when you have the itch? You know, is it something you do every day, or is it something you do? No, no. No. I, I I do it only when I, when I, there's something that bothers me. But you know, it, I could go months, uh, like uh, I could go for forty, fifty days without sitting down next to the computer. And do you find that uh, the work that you do? I mean, do you get what you're looking for when you write these stories? Like when you're when you have something that's bothering you, or you have a question that presents itself in the world that you then go try to deal with in your fiction. 
when you write that story and you get that story into the form that you want it to be in, does it bring you any real measure of satisfaction? Like, does it resolve things for you? Yeah, I don't know if it resolves things for me because it's always like, you know, it's like at the same time, it, it gives you this kind of highs that, you know, it's like, you know, as somebody who, who who tried quite a few drugs, you know, it's like there isn't anything like it when when you read it and you say, yeah, 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 that, that, that was exactly what I felt, you know. But at the same time, it always has this kind of feeling also that it didn't completely get it. But, but, uh, but, but you know, it's a wonderful feeling. I, I love it when, when you write something and it feels as if it comes together. You know, even if later many people will say to you, it sucks or I didn't get it. But but when you just kind of sit there and read it, you know it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and so when you first started out, uh, how did you know? How did it begin for you? If you had no real kind of like uh, traditional aspirations as a writer, like you didn't envision yourself becoming this big author, you just sort of started doing it one day, and then yeah, yeah. I started writing during my compulsory army service. In Israel, you go, for, uh, you have to serve for three years in the army, and uh, and I. Me, like my brother before me, you know, I got, uh, like my father before me, like all my family, all the male members of my family, we, we're all horrible soldiers. <laughs> and we all have problems with insubordination and I don't know. We kind of fuck up in very, various different ways, you know. And uh, And when I was in the army, I very quickly realized that whenever I kind of say what I think or what I feel, it gets me into trouble. So I would most of the time shut up and kind of pretend to be like, to pretend to be a soldier. Like I would imitate the other people around me, you know, if they would do something, I would kind of try to do the same and stay out of trouble. And, and, and at the very early stage, I found myself writing and it was, it had almost kind of like a, a confessional value. It was like saying to myself, okay, so I'm pretending to be something, but this is what I truly am. Yeah, well, no, it just restricts your, it restricted your self-expression so much. I mean, it must have been, like, such a relief to sit down and write. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and when I wrote, you know, I would just show it to a few of my friends. I, I still remember that I had this kind of thing, that when I wrote a story and I felt it was done, I would kind of print out four copies, you know, one for my brother and one for myself, another two for two of my friends, and that would be, that would be like... The first edition and the second edition and the third edition, it, it was it stopped there, you know. So, and then what was your day to day life like when you're serving, uh, you know, doing your compulsory military service in mm -hmm. Israel? Like, where are you living? Are you on some sort of military base? Or are you living in your? It, so I was in, you know, for the first six months I was in military base and I went through all those classes. I was never in the fighting unit. Uh, I I suffer from severe asthma, so I so I was spared that uh, enjoyable thing, you know, of being uh, in a fighting unit. <laughs> and uh, uh, but but after six months, I I did those kind. Of, I worked in shifts. I would do those kind of twenty-four hours or forty-eight hour shifts. That in a unit that where I did something that had to do with computers, and after that, I could uh, go home, you know, to my parents' place. And like, what does that do? Like, I'm interested in that. Like, as a as a national thing, where you have like all the males have to serve in the military for three years. Like, it's not all the males; it's all females too. It's everybody. I'm okay. So, like, what does yeah. that do when everybody has to like put a little bit of skin in the game? Like, 
does that give you a greater sense of, uh, I don't know, patriotism, or does it give you a greater sense of your national identity? Because I, I just I, the reason I ask is that I feel like in the United States there's such a small percentage of the country that's involved in anything having to do with the military. So when these wars happen that we're engaged in, it's like one percent of the population has any real like you know immediate human stake in it but like in a country yeah. where, where everybody has to participate like what does that do you know is it is it positive ultimately or do you think that it's negative well, well you know it's like it's very complicated i i, I the, the the first thing you know first of all like i would say that the positive thing about it is that the there is a strong element of equality, you know, because I think, let's say, in the U.S., if you're rich and you were born to a certain family, you could live all your life and meet all only the kind of people that are like you. But uh, when you go to the army and you serve there for three years, it doesn't matter if you're the son of the president or, I don't know, or the son of the richest person in in the country, you know, the people are going to judge you by your character and by the way that the stuff that you do. You know, if your feet stinks, they stink. They call you stinky. You know, you're not going to get out of it. And and if another guy who who has no money and came from a very poor town is is a stand-up guy, then everybody's going to like him. So so there is something very kind of a good on the community level but you know the function of the army of an army is basically to break your spirit and what you do most of the time when you're in the army the bottom line is kill people and get killed and that's not good for anyone you know yeah. and, and there is something about it that because in israel when you finish serving your compulsory service then you, then you go you stay in reserve a duty like i i served in reserve duty until i was 40 and some people serve even when they're older. And the thing about it is that uh, some people, you know, like kind of, I had a dentist who was a sniper, you know, <laughs> and and he's, he was like this kind of vegan, you know. He didn't let his kids play violent games. He was in a radical left wing, you know. And kind of 20 days a year, he would go and shoot people and kill them, you know. And the rest of the time, he would fight for peace and demonstrate against people who ate meat, you know? Fascinating. So, so yeah, so you have this kind of a, a, a bipolar, bipolar, how do you say that? Yeah, bipolar. Yeah, bipolar kind of a collective personality because, you know, people kind of live their normal life, but in the back of their mind, you know, everybody knows how to use a machine gun and a lot of people kind of, it was there, I just saw somebody get killed very close to them, you know, in violent circumstances, or killed people, or basically they're shell-shocked, but nobody kind of acknowledges the fact that they're shell-shocked. So so there's something very, you feel like, you know, something kind of uh, hurt, you know, in the collective psyche, it's like you have this kind of scar. Well, no, I was just going to ask you about that, because this is what's, fa I've never been to Israel, and this is what fascinates me about it, is that, or one of the things that fascinates me about it is uh, that it is such a uh, hot spot, like geopolitically. You know, there's yeah. so, there, there's so much uh, tension there uh, between nations. There's tension religiously. You know, all that kind of stuff, and uh, and there's a lot of violence. You know, and so I'm interested in like hearing you talk about like what it's like to live there and like how do you feel. 
because uh, I mean, it's something that you can't obviously be thinking about every minute of every day. You have to live your life. So I imagine that life there is much like life anywhere. You know, people go to work, people wash their clothes, people go out to dinner, you know, people live their lives, but you're living your life in Israel um, with all of this stuff sort of uh, there beneath the surface at all times. And I'm interested in knowing what that, you know, what is that like psychologically? And like, then maybe how does that affect, you know, what you write? Like, do you feel like that kind of stuff makes its way into your art? Yeah, well, you know, I always say that, you know, that I'm not sure that Israel is the best place to live in, but it's the best place to write in for sure, you know, because it's so intense and, and, and stories are always about one conflict or another. And there, you know, you're kind of like on ground zero, you know, so, so, and, and, and when I think about the country, you're right when you say everybody lives a normal life, but it's basically, you know, I think if you're an Eskimo, you very rarely tell to people around you, wow, it's really cold, you know? But the fact that it's cold really affects the, the way that you live, the way that you dress, the many of your actions. And I think that in Israel, the fact that everything is, is so stressful and dangerous, uh, that it affects the way that people behave, you know, which I think that there's something... People many times go in Israel can be very very extreme. It doesn't matter, you know. It could be extreme decadence. It could be uh, people who would give their entire life to help society. But uh, but there's always a feeling that you know you're on the edge of something. Well, yeah. I mean, do you feel like that? Like you know, on the positive side of things, do you feel like that causes people to live with a greater immediacy and appreciation for the moment? Like, do you think that there's, does it force you into the moment to to live with that sort of thing, or does it not have that effect? Yeah, I, well, you know, I think that, you know, it's a, it's this kind of energy, and you can take it uh, to live in the moment, you can take it to kind of suppress what living in general is, you know, you can take it to empathize, you can take it to alienate yourself from things around you. I don't think it's like, it's clear, but, 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 but the energies are very, very strong, and and basically, you know, I think that people in Israel, in the Middle East in general, they're not different from people in the U.S. or in Europe, but it's like, it's like you know, every city has a sewer system. And I feel that in the Middle East, you know, the sewer is running in the street. You know, all this kind of stuff that in the U.S. is there in a subtextual level and people kind of hint it to you and kind of, you know feel a little bit unrest when you do something in Israel it's kind of in your face you know and some sometimes it's ugly but there is something at least very sincere and honest and direct in the way it is well, you no. know what you're fighting well yeah no it's like it's like uh, you know my my uh, family comes from the south so like my family's from the southern part of the United States and then I was raised in the north like that's where I was born but I always have you know I've always had sort of a um, uh, I've spent a lot of time down south and just to like maybe maybe bring up like a parallel example. It's like race relations in the United States and yeah. the South. Um, you know, it, it's, it's obviously a lot uglier down there, but there's a lot more coexistence. You know what I'm saying? A lot of the cities and suburbs in the North um, are really segregated. And down South, you know, there's obviously some towns that, that fall into that line, but you have a lot of people, you know, uh, of different races and backgrounds living next door to each other, essentially. So there's a lot more, interaction and it's a lot it's a lot more direct i mean it, it feels similar to what you're that's saying. the thing because when somebody's like says something racist you can argue with it 
But when somebody kind of gives you a PC talk, but would feel very uncomfortable if his daughter dated a, a, a black person, you know, that's when it's get it's difficult. You know, I think many times when when there is some sort of an illness, then the worst part is before it kind of shows itself. When you when you have fever, you know, or when something happens, at, at least you know what you're fighting with. Right. And I feel that there is something many times that uh, that let's say in, in places you know in the West, the all all the energy goes not uh, to kind of uh, escalate the problem, but uh, to hide it in some sort of sort of sense, not to solve it, just to hide it. Yeah, yeah. Well, so what's going to happen? You know, like what is, what do you feel like? Like what? Because that's like I feel like this question has been. Um, in the news uh, since I was since I was born, you know what I'm saying? But like, yeah. Do you have any sense of how, what's going to happen? Like, will things ever resolve themselves in that part of the world? Like, do you feel like thing like progress has been made? Well, it's funny because you know, instinctively, you know, I I all the time believe that you know that things can get better, and basically, you know, that coexistence. It's not only kind of some, something that it would be easy to reach, but it's also a necessity for both sides. But uh, that's kind of a, because you know, if I can't be optimistic, then what am I doing there? You know, I should run away before I don't know the Iranians will nuke us or something. But uh, but on a rational level, you look at it. You know, if it's a kind of like a chess game and you start predicting where it's going. It's very. It's much easier to come with negative scenarios than with positive ones. You know, we're very difficult Israeli government. You know, the Hamas are not exactly the perfect partner to negotiate with. Uh, there is something about uh, the Arab Spring that uh, it has beautiful elements to it, but but it's even more instability to the region on on the other end. And now, when you see in Egypt, you know. Is it Muslim fundamentalist power are kind of getting stronger and stronger? You know, I'm saying, you know, it's not that I'm for tyranny, but but when you look around you, it's you say, okay, how how would this in the end amount to something that is positive and peaceful? I don't know. Yeah. I don't see like you know that leader anywhere in the Middle East, certainly not in Israel, who who's who can heal something. You know, I can see just all those kind of people. Who can make things worse? Yeah, yeah. No, it's like it's. It, it feels like it's not. Um, it's not settled. You know what's happening with the Arab Spring. It feels like it's. You know the story is still telling itself at this point. I mean, not that it ever really ends, but it just. It doesn't feel like there has been no punctuation mark. You know, I feel like things are still in their early stages. Yeah, yeah, and, it, and it's you don't know where it, go, where it goes. What I'm saying, like leadership wise, I must say that you know. Let's you look at Obama. Okay, you can say you know he, he delivered. He didn't deliver. I'm disappointed. I'm happy. But the bottom line is, you know, if I had to go and buy myself something, I don't know, at the drugstore, I would leave my son with Obama as a babysitter. Okay, I don't see any person in the Middle East I, which whom I would leave my kid with even for ten minutes. You know, <laughs> really, it's like they're like all. Bunch of crazy, aggressive, fucked up people. You know, it's not. It's not. It's not a question. It's like you know. What I'm saying you have, you have like people. I don't know. Like what's his name? Rick Santorum. You yeah, know, Rick Santorum. Yeah. 
Yeah, so 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 you could say, wow, we have those crazy people who want to be the presidents of the U.S., but we we have crazy people who are the prime ministers and presidents and leaders of our region, you oh. know. And so do you, they're like the same kind of crazy people, but only they won the elections. Well, right. I mean, that's that's the thing. So, like, they, if they won the elections, do you feel like those um, crazy people, you know, are the leaders that the population deserves, or do you feel like the elections are rigged, or you know, do you know what I'm saying? Like, you, there's the old saying in the in the states, anyways, where it's like you sort of get who you deserve, and if you don't like the person who's in office, you should have, you know, volunteered more, or done more. Or, you know, you know what I'm saying. So, like, yeah, no, well, you know, I think there's something about the American ethos. That it's both beautiful and weird. You know, when I was young, I, I kind of I did a coast to coast kind of a, a tour after my, after my army service, and somehow I found myself having a lot of conversation with homeless people. And you know, and in America, many times you see homeless people and they say, "No, it's all my fault." You know, and this guy is rich. You know. He deserves it, and I say, you know, it's what? Why is it your fault? You know, you were born in a very bad neighborhood. You're not healthy. You know, your your country didn't help you do anything. You know, it's not that like you fucked up, like as if you claim that you fucked up. But if there's something here, I don't know. It's like it's like maybe Protestantic thought. You know, that if somebody's rich, God must like him. You know. That yeah, and then everybody everybody thinks that they're next, like they're going to be rich next. You know? like, or even if you're not rich, you know, if you're not rich, you feel guilty for not being rich, you know. And that's something that really Israel, at least in its past, was a socialist country, and the idea is that that if somebody can't isn't making it, it's every it's it's the society's problem, you know. It's not his problem. Right. They should the society should sit with him and talk about the relationship, you know. That's like saying you fucked up. It's your problem. Yeah, I don't know what that is about us, but that's definitely true. I think Americans definitely take that on personally. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's all these ideas, all this kind of disguise, the limit. You see it, you know, in movies. You see it in many things that it's all this. It's, there's something beautiful thinking that you know that you can you can do do or get whatever you want, but. Uh, but uh, the U.S. is one of those places where it's actually less true. You know, you have less opportunities than, let's say, in European many European countries. You know, when where education is free, where much where there is something about it, about the U.S. Many times it looks almost, in some senses, like a medieval society. You know, if you're very rich and you're Child will you pay that for his tuition and you go to a rich university and he could be dumb you know but uh, but he would finish that university and if you're poor then yeah. then you kind of most of the time you're doomed. Well, uh, so so I heard you mention movies and so I want to get to this before we have to go. But like you directed a movie. Oh, I co-directed it with my wife, yeah. So talk about that a little film. bit. Talk about that a little bit, because that had some success. You won an award at the Cannes Film Festival, correct? Yeah, we won. The, it's called Camera d'Or. It's, like, it's, it's for the best debut movie. Uh, yeah, you know, I always liked movies, and I wrote screenplays before that. And this was the first time I directed it. Basically, my wife had written that beautiful screenplay, and we we showed it to quite a few Israeli directors, and nobody wanted to touch it. You know, they said to us, "You know, it's not a screenplay; it's a 85 pages poem." You know, and at some stage, I I told her, "You know, if we want to see this movie, 
we we have to do it ourselves. We have to direct it ourselves, and and it was quite an adventure. And it was really like with a surprising happy end because because for the entire process, you know, we couldn't get a budget, and a lot of people said, you know, we don't you don't know anything about cinema. Neither of you studied cinema, so how can you make a movie? But how did you do it? But we did. How did you do it? Like what? I mean, like getting the financing, getting the equipment, getting the crew together. How did how did you do that? Through uh, a lot of uh, begging and convincing, and the, the, look, you know, I think that usually m- movies are very much done uh, in by the way of the character or uh, of the director. You know, it's like a, some some kind of get everything done by fear, you know, some get everybody to admire them. Uh, with me, I don't know, I think me and my wife, we just try to convince, to tell everybody that it's going to be amazing and that they should be part of something that is amazing and that it's going to be enjoyable process too, you know. And uh, and I think that there's something about the movie, about the atmosphere in it, that you see that there's something very positive in everything around it, you know, it, it wasn't kind of like a, a, sometimes you go to film sets and it's like a war zone, you know, you feel like there is a general and people are shouting at each other. And But our set was, there was something very uh, empathic about it, like everybody tried hard because we believed we have this kind of common goal and that we can do something beautiful together. So are you going to do another movie? I'd love to, you know. Now uh, we have a young child, and my my wife is wor- working on a screenplay. But I don't want us to do a movie together because I, you know, I know that if we make a movie together, it will be a huge trauma for him. We will be disappear from his life for for six months, maybe a year. So, so I'm going to make a movie, but when he grows up later. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's it, it. Requires that level of time commitment. Like it just completely yeah, takes completely. over. So you know, I'm saying unless 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 you're rich or somebody finances you. But when I made the film, you know, it was like kind of I would return from shooting days like that would start in five a.m. and at eight p.m. And when I got back and I knew that I have another day at five five a.m. I would work for two hours like on the next day's shooting and when it was 10 p.m. I would sit down and do something to make some money, you know. I would write a column or do another thing, you know. And then sleep for two hours and then go for the next day of shooting. Oh my goodness. So like, yeah, and then what were you shooting on? Were you shooting on film or were you shooting on video? Yeah. No, no, we were shooting on film. We shot it on 35 millimeters. Oh, you did? Okay. Wow, so that's like that takes some know-how. So you had to hire a cinematographer and do all all of it. Oh no, no, the, the crew was completely professional, except for the act actors. Most some of them were professional, some were not. But but the crew was entirely professional. But it was the thing was that I, I, at the time I was doing very well in France as a writer, and it helped us to get some money from France. And actually, in the beginning, we we got more of our budget from. If the, uh, the French productions and from Israeli investors, and there's something about French people. I don't know. They like art, and they say, you know what? If you if you wrote a good book, maybe you can make a good movie. You know, we'll give you a shot. Yeah, no, they're they're, they're a lot more generous about funding the arts. You know, <laughs> in France. Yeah. You know, that's uh, that's nice about that country. You know. So were yeah. you at were you at the festival when you won the award? 
Yeah, yeah. And you had to go up on stage and give a speech or something? Well, it's funny because, you know, we were, we we didn't think we were going to win it. And we we were basically on our way to to the airport when they told us to come back, you know, and go for the ceremony. And uh, when we were in Cannes, we we already had our son. He was a baby. And, and I had only one white shirt. And when we were on the taxi on the way to to uh, the airport, he, he he ate a mango and he covered it all with man- mango juice. And I didn't mind because we were going home. And when we got back, you know, it was a Sunday and we couldn't get a shirt. And I kind of washed the, sh- the shirt in water. And when I went to the ceremony, like I have a white shirt, but it was completely wet. <laughs> and, covered in, and covered in like faint orange stains. <laughs> Oh no no! I think we could. We were succeeding in taking the stains out, but 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 we didn't have any time to dry it. And and I think that this is like you know. I think many times it's with those ceremonies, you see a guy in a suit and you say, "Wow, this guy dresses well," but he's actually wearing a red shirt. <laughs> so so what is next for you? You're obviously on this big tour uh, of the United States for a couple of weeks, and then like, what's do you, do you have any idea what's next? No, no. I usually, like you know, it takes me years to understand what I'm doing. I'm kind of doing all kinds of stuff, but I'm not. I'm writing very little fiction, and I'm kind of writing a, a lot of stuff about my father, which I don't know what I'm going to do with it. And I started writing a screenplay, and I stopped. So I don't know. I guess it, with me, it's like one day you somebody asks me what are you doing, and I'm saying I'm writing a book. Whoop! Oh, I'm working on a book, or I'm making a movie. Oh, I didn't know that, you know. But it takes me a lot of time to understand. To reach that stage, and then you then you're changing from one thing to the next. Like you could be working on a book for a month, and then all of a sudden start working on a screenplay, even though you haven't finished the book. And is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, look, there's something about about art is, for me in general that it's kind of like this kind of hobby, and I find it very difficult to force myself doing things. You know that I don't feel like doing, and the and I have this very, this very, very extremely strong drive. You know, when I do stuff, I can go for hours and not sleep. But, but I must kind of like what I'm doing and believe in what I'm doing because I can, I, I can't do that otherwise. I can work. You know, I'm very hard worker, but, but I can't manufacture art. You know, by forcing myself to do so. But do you make a living from your art? Like at this point, do you feel, like is that all you? Do? Uh, yeah. Well, you know, I always kind of. Made made a point that in any given moment, if I stop being creative completely, I'll be able to kind of support my family. So, so I'm a professor in university in in Israel. But basically, you know, I I I could support myself from writing now. You know, a, a lot because of because of the translations. You know, I've been translated to many languages and together, and I'm selling well in Israel. So I could live from it, but I. But I don't want to be in a position where I, I have to say, you know what, I need to publish a book in the next six years because, I don't know, right. my son wants needs to go to university. So all my life I worked in other things that kind of allowed me uh, to feel kind of safe enough so it would just be a hobby. Yeah. Well, and so in your, in your teaching, like what are some of the other things that you did? I wrote TV commercials, and basically, I did all those things after I was kind of a best-seller writing, best-selling writer in Israel. You know, so I wrote the commercials. I 
uh, I taught a lot. Uh, I edited screenplays uh, for movies. I I did a lot of kind of jobs that that were kind of close to writing, but not exactly writing, you know, and that were about kind of helping other people with their stuff. Uh, and uh, and I like that too, you know, because there's something very kind of uh, self-centered in being an artist. So it's good to do things that are not only focused on yourself. Yeah, I agree. Time time. I get I, I get claustrophobic if all I'm doing is working on my own my own stuff. You know, it just I start to feel really self-obsessed or something. Yeah, yeah, it well, can be too much. Well, Edgar, I, uh, I've really enjoyed talking with you. I appreciate you taking the time uh, to do it, and I wish you all the best on the rest of your uh, American book tour. Thank you, and come, and come to Tel Aviv. You know, it will be, it will be a great adventure. You know, I actually might. I, uh, I'm writing a book right now, and I'm, there's a possibility that part of it takes place in Israel, and I've never been, so I might have to come for research. So if that happens, I'm looking you up. Yeah, you should. All right. Well, listen. We'll have a good time. We'll have a good time there. That, that sounds good, and uh, safe travels, and uh, best of luck with everything. Thanks. Bye. Okay, you guys, there it is. That is the program. That is Edgar Carrot for the hour. He is an entertaining human being and a very gifted writer. Go get his book. It's called Suddenly a Knock on the Door. It is out there. It is available from FSG, wherever books are sold. Uh, Edgar's on Facebook if you want to find him there. He's on Twitter, at Edgar Carrot. And you can find him on the web. The address is edgarcarrot.com. This show, it's on the web at otherpeoplepod.com. It's on Twitter, at otherpeoplepod. I'm on Twitter, at Brad Listy. The show has a Facebook page. And if you want to email me, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Don't forget to go check out killrockstars.com. And thank you once again to the UCLA Extension Writers Program. That's today's sponsor. If you're working on a book, whether it's a novel or a collection of short stories, or if you're a screenwriter and you want some instruction uh, or you want some discipline, some enforced discipline, uh, or you want some assistance or you want some friendship in the creative community, go sign up for a class. It's very easy to do. You can attend right here in Los Angeles uh, in person, or you can do it remotely via the internet. Either way is totally, uh, totally fine. And there's no time like right now to get started. For more information, call 310-825-9415. That's 310-825-9415. Or you can visit them on the web at uclaextension.edu slash writers. Uh, and you can also check them out on Facebook and the Twitter. Uh, otherwise, uh, wrapping things up, the whole road trip experience, the vomiting, the chaos, the traffic jam. Uh, I will have you know that it did you know, work out in the end. Uh, my friends were very gracious, as they always are, uh, about the fact that we were late. They did not hold it against us. And, <clears throat> excuse me, my daughter was uh, so distracted by all the attention and the new stimuli at their house that she forgot uh, about the fact that she barfed, which was fortunate for me. Uh, she did not bring it up, and we were able to enjoy our time without having to discuss what happened. And uh, we did wind up staying for about an hour and 45 minutes, which was a little bit more than I had anticipated, but not much. And uh, then we drove home, and it was a very beautiful drive uh, in Southern California. There were some low clouds in the mountains and out over the ocean, and the sun was setting, and it was the golden hour. So there you have it, uh, a little bit of redemption. Please remember that all four of Richard Wright's grandparents were former slaves and that Sophocles may have died in his late 90s by choking on a grape 
Thank you, as always, for listening. I really do appreciate it. Thanks for being here. Thank you for spreading the word. I will be back again soon uh, with another extended and somewhat meandering conversation with an author just for you. Okay? Thanks. (laughs) 